Rogues Gallery Uncovered Bad Behaviour in Period Costume A non-judgmental expedition into the scandalous lives of history's greatest libertines, Lotharios and complete bastards. This podcast contains adult themes and a touch of colourful language. This particular episode also contains my attempts at pronouncing a variety of Greek names, some of which may cause hilarity or exasperation. The reason for the subject of this week's episode is that I'm just back home from my holiday in Greece, which was lovely, thank you very much. In between relaxing and pootling around on bikes in the sunshine, my wife was more than happy to explore various old castles and ancient sites with me, and to tell you the truth, I could tell by the look on her face just how fascinating she found my almost constant historical ruminations. What a lucky lady she is. However, I do have to go away again unexpectedly, this time for work, so this week's episode is being produced somewhat at the gallop, which basically means I haven't had time to add sound effects to the tale, and the ending might be a little more brusque than usual. I hope you don't mind. Normal roguish service will return soon, I absolutely promise. And while we're on the subject of the Aegean... Doing it Greek style. Arrogance, beauty, bad sportsmanship and extreme statue vandalism, with ancient Greece's most in-love-with-himself bad boy, Alcibiades of Athens. And as usual, the following tale is written in the present tense of the period in which it's set, and as such may contain attitudes and opinions of the protagonists and their times which would today be considered unacceptable. As I'm not an ancient Greek historian sitting beneath a tree in the sunshine bemoaning the moral laxity of a popular hero, those attitudes and opinions are profanos, not mine. Athens, 407 BC Like the statue of a god made flesh, he stands at the prow of a captured Spartan galley as it knifes through the Aegean towards the port city of Piraeus. In its wake sails a fleet of similarly captured vessels, proof of his matchless prowess in combat both at sea and on land. A gentle breeze ruffles his exquisitely long hair, which dances about his shoulders like a silken dream, while his diamond-bright eyes survey the shores of a home from which he's long been exiled. Many of his ships sport purple sails, the colour of warriors and heroes that he has made his own, and their decks echo to the sound of cheering sailors and musicians playing joyous tunes on drum and lyre. In what little space remains, dancers cavort in merry abandon. On the shore, a growing crowd lose themselves in an ecstasy of welcome, shouting his name and praising Zeus for his return. Many weep openly. Alcibiades, son of Cleneus, turns his iridescently beautiful face towards the crowd and lifts one perfectly sculptured arm in greeting. Behind his noble gaze, a razor-keen mind contemplates this historic moment. You'd have think they'd have made a bit more of an effort, wouldn't you? After all, don't they know who I am? Alcibiades is 43 years old, and for his entire life he's been the most beautiful, admired, skillful and indulged man in Greece. He's complete perfection in mind and body, and by Apollo does he know it. His father was a Persian war hero with Spartan connections, who died at the Battle of Coronia. 
while his mother came from an ancient and noble Athenian family who could trace their lineage right back to the legendary hero Ajax. Following his father's death, young Alcibiades was placed in the care of one of Athens' most revered sons, the statesman and military genius Pericles. It was he, it was said, who taught the charming and quick-witted youngster the art of oratory and how to command a large audience. Words, however, are all very well, but when you look like Alcibiades, you don't have to say much to make people pay attention to you. The whole of Athens was spellbound by his beauty. As a youth, grown men would gaze longingly at him, completely ignoring their wives. As he grew older, it was the wives who turned their lustful gaze in his direction. Alcibiades reveled in their attention and took pleasure and adoration from whichever avenue presented itself. He was also focused from an early age upon victory for himself at any cost. Once, when engaged in a wrestling match with another boy, he savagely bit him on the arm to prevent getting thrown and losing the match, in direct contradiction of the rules. His wounded opponent scalded him, saying that he bit like a girl. No, replied Alcibiades, I bite like a lion. Even a simple game of knuckle bones could turn into a public spectacle. Playing with his friends one day, Alcibiades was just about to make his throw when a man driving a cart came thundering down the narrow street right in their path. His friends scattered, but Alcibiades had yet to take his turn and would not be denied. He demanded that the driver stop until he had thrown, but the busy man completely ignored him and continued on his way. In fury, Alcibiades flung himself in front of the cart and lay prostrate in the street. Passers-by screamed in terror, his friends wept, the cart driver hauled on the reins and came to an abrupt stop just inches from the determined boy. Alcibiades took his turn. For Pericles, mentoring such a willful child was a task even he sometimes found difficult, and he had helped to broker a peace deal between Athens and the Persians. When a schoolteacher told Alcibiades that he didn't have a book of Homer that he could lend him, the boy punched him in the face. When another teacher said that he did have a book of Homer, but that he had corrected it himself, Alcibiades mocked him, saying that if he was clever enough to be editing Homer, then what was he doing teaching boys like him? He was even sarcastic to Pericles. When he asked to see the great man one day, he was told that he couldn't, because Pericles was working out how much money he needed to pay the state that year. Snorting, Alcibiades said that surely it would be better for a man of such intelligence to be working out how not to pay the state any money. When he ran away from home to be with one of his lovers, a fellow named Democrates, he put the entire household in uproar and there were demands to get the local town crier to publicly declare him missing. Pericles, however, would have none of it. If he's dead, then finding out about it a few days before we normally would won't help him, he said. And if he's still alive, then as far as I'm concerned, he'll be as good as dead for his disobedience and disrespect. Democrates was simply one of many young men who fell totally under Alcibiades' spell. So smitten were they with him that he could treat them appallingly and they'd always forgive him. A wealthy lover named Anitus invited Alcibiades and his friends to his house for dinner one evening. When they arrived, Alcibiades saw his host sat with other guests around a dining table groaning under the weight of expensive gold and silver tableware. Rather than join them, he instructed his companions to gather up half of the valuable plates and goblets and then leave. The dinner guests sat stunned as this blatant theft was carried out, at the end of which Alcibiades bade them a cheery good night and went home. Shocked, Anitus's friends turned to him and asked what he was going to do about such an unforgivably rude and criminal act. Surely Alcibiades deserved the harshest punishment. 
Not at all, said this lovesick idiot. He could have stolen all of it, and by leaving me with half, has shown a great kindness. Alcibiades was not shy in showing everyone just how little he cared for petty Athenian rules and morals. He wore long purple robes that trailed upon the ground and caused many to comment unfavourably on his arrogance and extravagance. He also used to walk around town with a dove tucked inside his tunic, and when he did something that he felt particularly warranted attention, he'd stick his chest out and allow the bird to fly away, drawing gasps of amazement and attention from everybody present. On one occasion, when he saw a crowd donating money to a temple, Alcibiades, little more than a child himself, dropped more coin than most could earn in a year, casually into the votive bowl. For him, it was but loose change. So delighted by his generosity were the crowd that they burst into spontaneous applause, at which point Alcibiades' tunic dove once more took to the skies. Glancing over his shoulder at the musicians heralding his arrival from the deck of his boat, Alcibiades notices that one of them is playing the flute, and his face clouds with fury. As a schoolboy, he considered the playing of the flute to be both ignoble and illiberal. His reasoning was that other instruments didn't affect the bearing or dignity of those playing them, but the accursed flute obscured not only the face, but also meant that the player's voice could no longer be heard. If a man could not be recognised or his voice heard, then what kind of a non-entity was he? Young Alcibiades completely refused to play the instrument, even though it was compulsory as part of his studies, and soon all of his fellow students followed suit. Flute players were subsequently mocked and despised, and its study dropped from the Athenian curriculum. Striding from his place on the foredeck, Alcibiades plucks the flute from the hapless musician's mouth and hurls it over the side into the sea. To Alcibiades, notoriety was far more preferable than anonymity. When many commented upon the beautiful tail of a quite magnificent hound that he owned, he immediately had the tail cut off, so the dog's beauty would not detract from his own. When his outraged friends told him that his selfish action would make him the talk of the city, he laughed and said, That's just what I want. I want Athens to talk about this, that it may say nothing worse about me. Of all his male lovers, only one truly had any claim to his respect, the legendary philosopher Socrates. He saw the potential in Alcibiades and wanted to protect and nurture it, saving the lad from legions of flatterers and smitten sycophants who wanted to take from him, and of course from his own selfish appetites. Despite being much, much older than Alcibiades and looking like the back end of a ram, Socrates had more than merely platonic feelings towards him. He once claimed to be ignorant of all things save the nature of love, and when glimpsing inside the tunic of another beautiful boy named Charmides, declared that he was a flame. That said, he never fawned over Alcibiades, nor begged for kisses and physical favours. Instead, he used the power of his words to inspire and calm the boy, often reducing him to tears. Even Alcibiades couldn't believe in the old man's restraint. Inviting him over for dinner, he used every trick in his arsenal of charm to get him into bed, but failed. Creeping into his room late at night, he slipped into bed behind the philosopher and whispered that there was no man as deserving as he to enjoy the beauty of his body. And surely, having sex with such a renowned figure could only be beneficial for him too, so it would be good for both of them. But still, Socrates demurred and Alcibiades had to admit that for someone to spurn the affections of somebody as irresistible as he must require almost superhuman strength, and his respect for the man grew even more. The two developed a strong, loving relationship that was not based upon sex. They trained for war together, 
shared a tent together and would talk long into the evening. Alcibiades saw it as a reciprocal relationship. He was getting wisdom, companionship and moral guidance, and Socrates got to look at his beautiful face every day. Occasionally, of course, Alcibiades would need more than conversation. Then he would sneak away from Socrates and go in search of a man or woman who could offer him the adoration and pleasure that he needed. When he did this, Socrates would have to hunt him down like a runaway slave and drag him from whichever bed he was found in. This could result in violent arguments, during which Alcibiades would slap the old man and scream obscenities in his face. At the age of 20, Alcibiades accompanied Socrates to war. He had a special shield made from ivory and gold on which was embossed the image of Eros, the god of love and sex. The city of Potidaea had revolted, and Athens sent a task force to pacify it by force of arms. During one skirmish, Alcibiades fell wounded, and it was Socrates who stood over him, keeping the enemy at bay until both could be rescued. Despite the fact that it was the philosopher's bravery that should have been celebrated, the high command felt that Alcibiades should be the one who received the accolades, owing to his higher social position. Socrates positively encouraged the deception, sacrificing his own glory so his protégé could enjoy the prestige and, hopefully, the responsibility that went with it. It's said Alcibiades returned the favour in the rout following the Battle of Delium, when the Athenian forces were being savagely driven from the field. Alcibiades on horseback saw Socrates on foot fighting as part of the rearguard, and rather than ride to safety, he fought beside his friends until the attacking forces had themselves retreated. It's also said that after the siege of Melus, he generously took a captured slave girl as his mistress, therefore saving her from ill-treatment at the hands of his troops. His generosity presumably exhausted, he then voted to have all the male prisoners executed. Back at home, Alcibiades married Hipparete, the daughter of a wealthy Athenian nobleman. He'd met the bride's father when, in a spontaneous burst of enthusiasm, he'd punched him in the head, just because he could. When the public got wind of this, a scandal ensued, and Alcibiades had prostrated himself before his victim and offered his beautiful body to be scourged as punishment. The still-bruised man declined the offer, and instead offered his daughter's hand in marriage. The relationship was, for the most part, happy, although Hipparete grew increasingly irritated by her husband's constant cavorting with other men and with female courtesans, so she often went to live with her brother. She only tried to get a divorce once making her appeal to the magistrate in public, as was the law. Before she could finish her declaration, however, Alcibiades physically picked her up and carried her bodily through the marketplace back home, where she stayed until she'd changed her mind. Alcibiades had once imprisoned an artist in his house until he'd filled it with portraits of himself, so this behaviour was not unusual. With his laurels freshly won, Alcibiades was soon itching to get back into battle and lent his support to a military expedition to the Isle of Sicily. Blinded by greed, many Athenian young men jumped at the chance to go, despite many warning that it would be a total disaster. One father set his own house on fire so that his son would have to stay behind and rebuild it. After the expedition had set off, however, Alcibiades was accused of being part of a gang of drunken youths who had vandalised some sacred statues. These statues of the god Hermes were known for their particularly large and erect penises, which young men would rub for luck and girls would rub for fertility. It was said that in his arrogance, Alcibiades had snapped off the phalli of dozens of statues and strewn them on the ground all over Athens, like the fallen columns of a very tiny temple. Alcibiades was ordered home to stand trial for heresy, but when he heard that his enemies had been spreading scurrilous rumours about him, 
such as that he enjoyed dressing up as a high priestess, he realised that he'd be convicted and executed the minute he set foot back on Athenian soil. So, while promising to take the first trireme home, he instead fled to Athens' greatest enemy, Sparta. The Spartans were happy to receive the allegiance of such a famous and skilled warrior, and he happily served them against his own people, who had, unsurprisingly, condemned him to death in his absence. Ever the consummate actor, he pretended to enjoy the Spartan style of dress, their bland food, and their harsh… Spartan ways. Whatever it took to stay on top. Unfortunately for Alcibiades, he also spent some of his spare time seducing the wife of the Spartan king, who happened to be away on campaign. When she gave birth to a son that clearly wasn't his, the cuckolded king's fury was terrifying to behold, and he immediately, and again unsurprisingly, condemned Alcibiades to death. The much-condemned Athenian, however, didn't wait around to witness the king's annoyance as, by then, he'd fled again, this time to an enemy of both the Spartans and the Athenians, the Kingdom of Persia. His advice to the Persians, who were, to say the least, pleased that Alcibiades had arrived upon their doorstep, was to leave Athens and Sparta to their conflict, as the war was weakening both of them and whoever won, both would subsequently be easier to influence once it was all over. He then schemed to get himself readmitted to Athens by suggesting to its generals that they overthrow democracy and return to having a king, as the Persians were more likely to deal favourably with a single ruler and might side with them in fighting Sparta. Forsaking the democracy that was the cornerstone of an entire society just so one man could get his own way. Who would agree to such a selfish proposal? They did, and soon democracy in Athens had been temporarily suspended and an oligarchy known as the 400 were in charge. After winning over a vast assembly of sceptical troops with a stirring speech that highlighted his own remarkable talents, a returning Alcibiades was voted to become a general, an appointment which he felt was long overdue. And he might have been right. Setting sail to wage war on Athens' behalf once more, a series of spectacular military victories followed, the battles of Abydos and Cyzicus and the siege of Byzantium to name just a few. Which is why, when he finally decided to return for good, the great man is now getting the welcome home that he feels he deserves. Not that this will put paid to his scheming, shameless self-belief and pathological copulation. If he knew that three years later, whilst enjoying the pleasures of his latest mistress, his house would be set on fire by jealous rivals and he'd be pincushioned with arrows and javelins the minute that he ran out, he might not have been quite so smug. But knowing Alcibiades, he probably would have been. No one loved Alcibiades as much as he loved himself. But after his death, he divided opinion among ancient Greek chroniclers. Most felt that he was undoubtedly a brave and skilful general, although not the military genius that many Athenians, and he himself, obviously, thought he was. In fact, some felt that listening to the fawning yes-men along with his own extraordinary self-belief led Alcibiades to make some very rash decisions. The Sicilian expedition, for instance, was seen by many as fuelled by his own ego and self-interest rather than any kind of strategic master-planning. As a public speaker, opinion was again mostly favourable of his skills, despite or possibly because of his lisp, which actually made him more relatable to his audience. One ancient historian did say of him that he was a prince of talkers, but in speaking most incapable, meaning that in private he was unbeatable, but in front of a crowd, not so much. But this grump was in the minority. 
Alcibiades could command and fascinate a crowd, even if he infuriated them at the same time. Aristophanes said that Athens yearns for him and hates him too, but wants him back. We all know someone like that. Where ancient writers mostly disagree is on the subject of Alcibiades' character and the effect all of his backstabbing, shagging, boasting and political chicanery had on the fortunes of Athens. Demosthenes thought that he was a hero, saying that he took up arms in defence of democracy and showed his patriotism not with money or words, but by actual service to his country. But Thucydides was not such a fan. In fact, he thought that Alcibiades was responsible for the wholesale destruction of Athens, writing, His habits gave offence to everyone and caused them to commit affairs to other hands and thus, before long, to ruin the city. Plutarch was a bit more succinct, describing him as the least scrupulous and most entirely careless of human beings. Which is why he makes such a perfect rogue. Next time on Rogue's Gallery Uncovered. King Kickass. Meet 18th century Europe's most ripped monarch, Augustus the Strong. It's a tale of barehanded animal fighting, manly feats of strength, rampant sex, and assembling the finest collection of delicate Chinese porcelain known to man. Apologies that this episode is somewhat rushed. I'll tell you more about my unexpected work journey next time, which might not be next Wednesday, as I'll have just got back, so expect a roguish download maybe a little later in the week. Despite all this messing around, I really hope that you're still enjoying the podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends, leave a high rating or a nice review, and make sure that you visit roguesgalleryuncovered.com for lots of roguish content. In fact, a whole gallery's worth, and to sign up to my newsletter and become a lovable rogue. The link is, of course, in the show notes. Right, I'm off to pack again now. Have a great week, and I'll see you yesterday. <laughs>